Welcome back to the Cherry Pick Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are back. We took a little bit of a break, uh, about like a six-month break, six-month break. But um, we're back. We're ready. Almost uh, the playoff season, almost the playoff race. We're, we're excited about it. If, if there's a time to come back to podcasting for the NBA, it'd be right now. Got the boy NMZ with me today. We got some. We got a few topics. We've, we've been wanting to dive in for a while. It's just uh, stuff's been holding us back. We want to get into it. But we got some good topics for today. Uh, let's just jump right into it. To start, I want to talk the MVP race how it's going to play out at the end of the season, what we think. I'll let you go first. I'll let you lead the way and just uh, give your thoughts on who should win it. I think we'll be in the on the same page um, by the end of it. But I just want to talk the MVP race and what, what we actually think of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm leaning Jokic. I think most people are. Um, I think the, the fact that he has been there every night and the way he's been playing, especially offensively, and even post Jamal Murray, they just haven't missed a beat. You know, that Nuggets team has been consistent all year long. Um, I think they're up at the four seed right now. And I know that's a little bit lower than most MVPs, uh, generally speaking. But um, when you look at who, you know, who his stiffest competition would be, I, I think I'd start with Embiid. But the, the 19 games missed kind of looms large. Um, as of late, CP3 has been kind of being mentioned and thrown out there. But I feel like every year, despite his impact, um, due to his modest, you know, box score statistics, I don't think they like stand out in a way that voters would uh, gravitate towards giving CP3 the vote. So I don't think he'll garner serious consideration as, as the winner, but I think he'll be perhaps a finalist, which would also be an achievement in itself at age uh, 36. Um, and yeah, like guys like LeBron, Durant, Harden, um, they've all missed extended periods of time. So I think this one's Jokic's to win. Yeah, for sure. I'm agree with Jokic, but I feel like post or pre All Star game, everyone sort of came to a consensus that it was Embiid. Embiid was leading the pack, and then he got injured, and uh, we know how that plays out. You can, he's back now; he's still doing well. But um, Jokic, for sure, statistically, he has the narrative. He has pretty much everyone comes to a consensus that Jokic gets it: 26 points a game, 10 rebounds, eight assists, the, the 56 field goal percentage. Yeah, he's a center. Yeah, he um, gets easy layups a lot, but he's not your typical center. He's basically a point center at this point. He's shooting threes. He's shooting 40% from three, which is insane for his size. And it, it's sort of statistically. And I think the MVP race, the last like five years has been based off a of narrative. He has that as well. Um, I'm going to throw Curry in there. Obviously we have to, the only thing holding him back is the record. It's almost like when uh, Russell Westbrook won a few years ago, the only reason um, we were even thinking he shouldn't win is because they were what a six seed, a five seed. We were like, Oh, it's too low of a record. And Curry, what are they, eight, nine seed on the brim of the play-in game? We can't give the, uh, an MVP to that. But um, 31 points a game, just about 32, 48% from field goal, field goal percentage and 42% from three. Best numbers of his career, playing the best ball he's ever had. But sadly, not on the team to uh, do it for him. Now, I want to talk about Defensive Player of the Year as well. Um, I got Ben Simmons at the moment, but – it could change. It's just not really talked about until the end of the season. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I'm actually going to go with Gobert. Um, but I will acknowledge that there is, you know, a chance Ben Simmons wins. And I think that's uh, – and we don't talk about this as much with Defensive Player of the Year, but I do think voter fatigue exists across all awards. So I think, you know, perhaps the voters get tired of, you know, just handing Gobert Defensive Players of the Years. And sometimes, you know, even with Giannis, I felt like when he won MVP – the voters had to go back and rethink it because of what happened in the postseason. And with Gobert, his regular season defensive impact, you know, it's undeniable, but there are, there have been times where come postseason time, you know, due to a certain matchup or scheme, he's been 
you know, less effective. So I, I'd be interested to see that. I do think that um, kind of like the Jokic situation, Gobert's only missed a game. I don't know if that's going to tie into it. Uh, Simmons has missed uh, quite a few games. And it's also uh, with Philly, we see they have three, you know, elite defensive players, you know, Simmons, Embiid, and even Matisse Thibel, who plays in spurts. So sometimes I think that it, it's harder to kind of centralize Philly's um, defensive, you know, acumen into one guy. I think that it's kind of spread between those three. Um, as with, but with Utah, you know, their top five defense, I think most people would agree, is largely due in part to, you know, Gobert's rim protection, which I think it also holds a lot more value than people think. Yeah. Um, Gobert's always going to be considered. He's always going to be in the defensive player of the year race. But like you said, voter fatigue, I think players are even starting to just sort of rebel against him getting defensive player of the year because they're kind of offended by it he's just a tall seven footer he blocks a lot of people he can guard but a lot of guards especially they have been coming out and saying they try to get switched on to go bear or like go bear to get switched switch on to them because they don't think they can guard them and i feel like a defensive player of the year yeah they're probably just getting bored of him winning it and they're getting bored of just like someone else like they want someone else to actually win the award they want to win the award ben simmons especially he wants to win it really badly he's trying to get that narrative at the moment he's missed a lot of games he's on a very good defensive team so it's hard to sort of judge what he actually does but statistically ben simmons defensively i think is just he's better defensively than rudy gobert but i feel like rudy gobert is always going to be considered and he'll probably win i wouldn't be surprised if rudy gobert wins but I think Ben Simmons might do more on the defensive end. He can guard one through five. Rudy Gobert, I feel like to win defensive player of the year, you can't just guard centers. And um, I think at this point, he doesn't really have the narrative anymore. So I'm, I'm going with Ben Simmons, but I would not be surprised if Rudy Gobert wins. Yeah, I could, I could definitely see that. Yeah, I think that Ben Simmons has a legitimate shot. Um, I think Philly might even have two finalists. I think depending on how the voters you know go this year, I know Miles Turner has missed quite a bit of time, so I wouldn't be shocked if, you know, Simmons and Embiid potentially um, are finalists or, you know, three uh, Philadelphia players end up on the all-defensive team. Um, just That's just how good they've been this year defensively. Um, so, yeah, I do think Simmons has a shot. I'll probably lean Gobert, but um, if that voter fatigue does play a factor, um, I wouldn't be shocked if Simmons, you know, ends up winning it this year either. Yeah, for sure. Gobert will definitely be considered. Ben Simmons will definitely be considered. The 76ers of the holes, I think, is the best two-way team in the league, defensively, offensively. There's not many teams that can do what they do on both ends of the floor. If they go into the playoffs healthy, they could make a pretty good run. They can make it to the finals, even if they uh, maybe get lucky in the Nets, just sort of have a fallout in the playoffs, which would not be surprising. Um, I want to move on. I want to talk about Russ, Russell Westbrook. Um, on triple-double record watch, if they play tonight, they play the Hawks tonight. Um, he has 181 total triple-doubles tied with Oscar Robinson. And um, if he gets a triple-double tonight, he actually breaks the record. And I want to talk about Russell Westbrook, about his whole career, how his career just gets sort of misconstrued or not just based off how fans actually see how he actually plays. So I want, I'll let you dive in first with Russell Westbrook. What do you actually think about him, how his career has panned out, and how we actually see him as a player? Yeah, I think first off, you know, hats off to Russell Westbrook. I think him getting this triple-double record, I think he's going to get it tonight. I just think that, you know, with Beal out, I think he's going to go crazy. Wouldn't be shocked if he had like a 40-point triple-double tonight against the Hawks. Um, but And I think what's interesting about Russell Westbrook, I've you know, I've had a chance to watch most of his career, and he's definitely – you know, grown as a player, he's a great leader, um, you know, and most people try to kind of flip the narrative about him as a teammate and what he does for teams. But when you go back and actually listen to what guys say about him, 
Um, they really appreciate him. A lot of guys are on record actually saying, you know, he's the best teammate they've ever had. Um, when it comes to on the floor play, you know, I think Russell Westbrook, you know, I think he's becoming a little bit underrated and it sounds crazy, but I think with the proliferation of three point shooting and advanced stats and efficiency going all over the place, people have began to take, you know, a little bit away from what Russell Westbrook is doing. I don't think his triple doubles are just normal triple doubles first off and the frequency at which, you know, that, at which he does it with, I think that's what really needs to be, you know, taken into applied with context, right? Because this guy's going out there almost every night and doing that. And I think he had eight triple doubles, I think it was in his first six seasons. And since then he's just taken off at a crazy rate. So I know some people are going to call it stat padding or empty numbers and whatnot, but you know, there's a statistic out there that Russell Westbrook wins 75% of his games when he gets triple double. Um, he's been a winner throughout his career. Uh, obviously, he's had a chance to play with some really great teammates. But I do think that, you know, at the end of the day with Russell Westbrook, and I know Stephen A. Smith touched on this, you know, on first take, but most people are going to wait for him to win before they crown him or, you know, give him his flowers. But I do think that, you know, come retirement or when Westbrook hangs it up, he's going to be appreciated a lot more than he is right now. Yeah, for sure. And I think just as NBA fans, until I'd say this season with Russell Westbrook, there's a spectrum. There's um, supporting Russell Westbrook where you think he's a god, he's the best player of all time, and they're like the mega fans for Russell Westbrook. And then there's people that just like absolutely hate him. They hate how he plays. They hate his game. They they, they even say he's a bad teammate, which no one, no teammate ever about Russell Westbrook has said that. And I feel like until recently, there's been any sort of middle ground that we've come to a conclusion where okay, he's good. Okay, he's done enough for his team to get wins. He's maybe in the playoffs the last few years, he's been injured. And in the playoffs before that, early on in his career, he might have choked or he might have not played up to his standard or potential. But I think until just now, I feel like just now we've come to a conclusion that there's no player in the history of the NBA, and I doubt ever, that will consistently average a triple-double like he is. And I feel like just overall as a player, his whole career has just been absolutely like misconstrued by fans. And I'm, I've never been a Russell Westbrook guy. I've never been a big fan of him, but I respect his game. I respect how he plays. He, he gets his teammates involved, um, especially the last five years of his career. And um, I think averaging a triple-double almost puts a target on his back. If he never did that, if he never once averaged a triple-double and he just plays how he plays, if even if it's uh, 25, eight and eight, everyone, everyone would respect him. But I felt like after he started consistently averaging a triple double fans were like, okay, he's stat padding. Okay. He's trying to get triple doubles. I mean, if he went 75% of his games by getting a triple double, wouldn't you try to as well? And I feel like NBA players are doing that nowadays. We got uh, Luka Doncic. We got other players that are getting triple doubles frequently and they're seeing what he's doing. And he sort of paved the way for um, pretty much triple doubles to be a consistent thing going on in the NBA for the rest of time. Yeah, especially in today's game. Um, and I know we'll touch on this later, but just the up and down nature of the game. And I think stats are a little bit easier to accumulate than they've ever been before, but still his triple doubles aren't 10 and 10, right? Sometimes he's getting 21 rebounds, 24 assists. So, I mean, his, you know, his floor game, it's all, he's all over the place. I think that the effort and energy he puts out on a nightly basis, I mean, he's in his thirties. That's what's also crazy to me. He's not like 22 years old. This guy's, you know, well over a decade into his career, multiple surgeries, and he finds a way to, you know, be the most energized player on the floor, despite playing, you know, 34, 35 minutes a night and the wizards need it. I mean, 
The Wizards were 15 games under 500 about a month ago. Um, they've pulled off some wins now. They're they're threatening to grab that eighth seed from Charlotte. So, um, you know, Russell Westbrook's play as of late has been great. Uh, the Wizards as a whole are playing inspired basketball. So, honestly, you know, I'm glad we have this play in because a team with Westbrook and Beal, um, that's fun. That's must-see TV, especially, you know, in a, like a one-game elimination situation. Yeah, there's been players like Chris Paul, like other point guards that have averaged double-doubles their whole career or just about like uh, 18, 20, and 10 with assists. But there's never been a guard. There's never been anyone below 6'10". There's no, never been a player ever besides Oscar Robinson to average triple-double. But there's no one, no guard to go in and fly in and get 15, 20 rebounds a game. I've never seen that ever. A guard consistently get a lot of rebounds and it's not like he's doing it just to get 10 rebounds every game i'm seeing it as he gets 15 to 20 or he gets 5 to 10 it's it's sort of just sort of all balancing out he's going in he's trying to get boards i don't think he's stealing rebounds i don't think he's stat padding with assists or points or anything like that he's genuinely just a fun player to watch and he's grown on me especially the last three or four seasons and um i feel like he's growing on everyone it's just he's not He's shown that he's not actually stat padding. It's just how he plays the game. Um, moving on, we want to talk about the uh, the condensed schedule, basically making it um, harder for players to stay healthy going into the playoffs and how this is going to affect them. I'll let you lead the way on this one, but I, I, I think it's very interesting to talk about. Yeah, I think that, you know, ever since the conclusion of last season, I think the finals ended in October, um, the short turnaround was always something that was going to, you know, have an effect on how this season played out. I think we see it in some of the teams that, you know, reached even the conference finals. Like the Celtics, you know, they've looked a bit flat this year. They've had some injuries. Same with the Heat, who made it all the way to the finals. And, of course, the Lakers, you know, who played a large period of this season without their two best players. Um, the, the injuries, you know, have piled up. And, you know, some of them are freak, you know, freak accidents like LeBron with the high ankle sprain, but some of them are like Anthony Davis or Jamal Murray, where, you know, they're almost non-contact injuries and it, it just felt like their body in a way gave out. Um, and when you shorten, you know, I know there's 10 less games this year with 72 games, but there were so many back-to-backs and four games in a week. And, you know, I think that even the all-star break was a little shorter than usual. Um, less practice time, training camp was reduced. Um, the rookies didn't get summer league this year. So the NBA was moving on a very condensed schedule. I thought this was always going to be kind of something to watch out for. Um, and of course, there's going to be the training aspect, the nutrition. Not every guy takes care of their body the same. Um, but it just felt like so many stars this year, you know, whether it be, you know, Donovan Mitchell right now in Utah, obviously LeBron and AD hardens out with the hamstring. Um, and, you know, the list goes on and on. Jamal Murray's kind of lost for the season which sucks because I thought the Nuggets could have been a, a real, you know, player down the stretch. Um, it, it makes me wonder, does load management become more of a thing going forward? You know, seeing how many guys have gotten hurt because obviously this impacts your career going forward, you know, your potential earnings. So I'm interested to see what the NBA does to hedge against, you know, a potential load management issue going forward. At the beginning of the season, I wasn't opposed when they said it was a 72-game season because I feel like, to an extent, it makes every game matter a little bit more. But with the condensed schedule making them play more back-to-backs, even back-to-back-to-backs, there's been that in the season. It's just like, it's obvious what's going to happen. It's obvious that there's more players going to get injured. No one's going to get enough rest. 
And yeah, there's going to be more load management if needed. And I feel like with teams like the Clippers, who's known to um, do load management with Kawhi and Paul George and stuff, it kind of somewhat helped them a little bit because they could do a little more load management and be, um, they be more understand the NBA be more understanding with it. But I feel like when you have competitive guys, just like going out there over and over again, back to back to back, there's obviously going to be more injuries. When you have Joe on beat, having a career year, having the best stats he's ever had, winning the most games he's ever won in the first 30 games. It's just sort of, it's sad to see someone like that go down and players just consistently going down with the condensed schedule and how it's going to affect the playoff race, how it's going to affect the end of the season, the play-in game. And um, yeah, we can move into that now, the play-in game discussion. This is something that sort of everyone has talked about. LeBron has been openly uh, against it, but then the last few weeks, a bunch of players have had their varied opinions. We had um, NBA owners having opinions on it as well. And obviously, if you're in the play-in game, if you're currently a seven or eight seed right now, you're going to hate it, which the Lakers are. They're a seven seed right now. They're going to hate the idea of a play-in game, or they might be a six seed now. But anyone else ahead of that, the Nets, the um, Suns, the even Trailblazers now, they don't care about a play-in game. They're in the playoffs. So anyone in the play-in game, the nine and 10 seed is loving it. Seven and eight seed is going to hate it. And I feel like if this continues going forward in the future seasons, we're going to see this every single year just players openly saying, I hate the playing game. Yeah, because you're in it. So, I mean, that's my personal opinion on it. You can have, or anyone can have their own personal opinion, but I feel like no matter what, there's going to be problems with the playing game, but I do want to see it. Yeah, I think that, you know, this is kind of, last year I think was, you know, they it was kind of makeshift. They had to kind of figure out a way to make it competitive and get those teams that were coming to the bubble to have a shot. But now that it's actually kind of put in place, as something that we might see going forward. Um, it'll take some time for, you know, players that were part of the previous generation or used to, you know, the playoffs being a certain way to adjust. I think until this is normalized, yeah, we're going to see some complaints. But personally, as a fan and as someone that, you know, watches regular season basketball, I don't mind this one bit. Like, I think that having teams like in the 11 and 12 spot, like even Chicago, they're not actually in the play-in. Um, but generally speaking, an 11 seed would probably be not worried about the regular season games. In fact, they'd probably be trying to tank and go go even lower to increase their draft odds. But we saw Chicago at the deadline, you know, double down on trying to win games. They kept veterans like Thaddeus Young and Garrett Temple, and they even went out and traded for Vooch. So it's made more teams competitive, right? I think the, the anti-tanking has always been something that NBA's um, been trying to take care of because obviously for most, you know, I'd say small market teams, the best way for them to acquired talent has always been by getting a high draft pick. I mean, we saw Philly do it and look at the position they're in uh, with the Sam Hinkie era. But um, yeah, I think that, you know, decreasing the lottery odds, you know, and making it more evenly distributed throughout those teams that do tank and having, you know, more teams qualify for like postseason basketball um, is a good thing. Um, I know that it's an extra game or two for the seven and eight seed, but, you know, as a fan, I want to see something kind of similar to like a March Madness atmosphere where, guys have to go all in and it's pretty much a game seven the minute you step on the floor. So I actually like this idea. Yeah. As a fan, I love it. And it's just great to see lower seeds having, giving them more of an incentive to try not to tank. And if it showed the last three, four seasons as a Knicks fan, especially tanking does not work. And they've showed that with decreasing the uh, lottery odds. I think it's like 14% for the top three, basically worst records in the league, but that's so low. The Knicks were in the top three, what, last season's, two seasons ago, and we got uh, 
fifth pick, sixth picks. I don't, I don't even remember. It doesn't work. And if the NBA has tried to move to anything within the last five years, collectively, it's decreased tanking and increase fun games to watch at the end of the season with like, cause no one's wanting to go to a Houston Rockets game right now because there's no way they're about, they're not in the playoffs. No one's wanting to go watch them. I'm not going to watch them on TV. It's not going to be fun to watch, but when we have San Antonio Spurs, what, what are they? A nine, nine seed, 10 seed right now. There's a chance of them getting in 10 seed. There's a chance of them getting into a playoff game and they're a 10 seed. And I, I feel like that's going to be more fun to watch than watching a t- 10 seed San Antonio Spurs bounced out of the playoffs. No, no chance getting anything. They're, they're just trying to tank a little bit to hire their lottery odds. And as a fan, I love it. As a player, I'm sure they hate it if they're a seven or eight seed because, yeah, they're like, I should be sitting comfortably in the playoffs right now. But I feel like going late into the season, especially with a condensed schedule, we get less games to watch. And the play-in game, it, it, as a fan, it's great. And I absolutely love it. And I feel like it should go go on going forward. And I just hope it, I hope it works out. Yeah, and the last thing I want to throw in it, and I think it's really interesting because I'm looking at these standings, and you know, a team like Utah or Phoenix, who have you know been great all season long, you know, they likely get rewarded with you know either LeBron or Steph Curry um, as their initial opponent in the first round after the play-in, uh, assuming the seven and eight seed kind of advance. Uh, same thing in the East, you could even get a Boston Celtics squad or you know that Wizards team we're talking about with you know Westbrook and Beal. And what's interesting is when you're one of those top two seeds, you don't actually know who to prepare for until pretty late. Cause you have to wait for the playing results to come in. So I think we might even see some competitive first round matchups between the one, eight and two, seven this year, especially early on um, because that adjustment period or, you know, who, who not knowing who you're going to play right up, until, right up until the end um, that might play a factor in this. So it's going to be definitely fun to watch. Um, I'm going to tune in for the playing games. I actually enjoyed the one last year between uh, Memphis and Portland. I thought that was a great one. Um, and I'm sure they're going to find ways to work out, you know, the playing details going forward. Like if there's a nine or 10 seed, that's like 10 games back and the disparity is too large, perhaps not having that. But um, this year it's been pretty tightly packed. I think all these teams can go out and compete. Um, and I'm glad to see all these teams have a shot. And even a team like the Pelicans who aren't even in right now, they're only a game and a half behind San Antonio. So I think there's more than 10 teams alive in each conference. So it's going to be great to watch, you know, this final week of the regular season. Yeah, for sure. And it's kind of dangerous for one and two seeds going into the playoffs, because if you have a team coming in hot, if you have a team coming in, winning a play in tournament, they're coming like the Suns last year, they were undefeated in the bubble. Yeah. They didn't make the playoffs, but if you come in like that, if the Suns were to make the playoffs that season, that would have been dangerous for a one seed because when you have a team rolling like that, it's dangerous. And with the condensed schedule, with injuries going into the playoffs, and we have a 9-10 seed come in winning, what's it going to be, four straight games? I don't know how long the playing tournament is going to be. That's going to be dangerous for a one and two seed. So we might see competitive seven-game matchups going into the first round with the one-eight seed. That would be fun to watch. And it'd be great to see a, a one seed get bounced in the first round. I wouldn't mind seeing it. If the Nets got bounced in the first round, that'd be hilarious. As a Knicks fan, I hope that happens. But that's pretty much it, what we have today. Um, it was some good topics. I'm glad we got to talk about it. Cherry Pick Podcast. Got the boy NMZ with me. Thank you for listening. Uh, going forward, we'll get some sort of schedule out with podcasts. We'll, we'll get some more clips out on YouTube. And uh, thank you for watching or listening. Um, see you later. Aiden B.